this week on the Backtable podcast. The long-term retreatment rates for both groups of therapies are in the 10 to 30% range at five to 10 years. Lines up pretty nicely. PAE has a retreatment rate of that. So do all the other mists. It's, it's really consistent. And so if we have this similar retreatment rate and we know what the natural history of the disease is, why wouldn't you want to choose something that is less invasive, has a better safety and side effect profile, and won't affect sexual function rather than something that's more invasive? And so I think that's a, a better option for patients. And if you were to counsel them appropriately and kind of present everything like this, I would argue that a patient would rather undergo something like a PAE and preserve his sexual function early on and then progress if he needs to to something more invasive later on in life or have a repeat PAE if he needs to rather than move forward to something more invasive surgically. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Today's Back to a Podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific Interventional Oncology and Nebulization Division. Boston Scientific Interventional Oncology and Nebulization is a global provider of medical devices. Boston Scientific's goal is to become the leading partner by enabling and developing minimally invasive procedures. Boston Scientific IOE has recently launched Embold Fibered Coils. These embolic coils are built on the radical idea that simpler is better. With a kinkless nitinol delivery wire, ability to deliver through microcatheters from 021 to 027, a handle-free detachment, and PET fibers providing best-in-class seclusion, Embold Fibered Coils give users a reliable coil option that simplifies the complex. Now, back to the episode. I'm thrilled to welcome back Dr. Sam Mooley from Northwestern University. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How's it going this week? Very good. Very good. How's it going with you guys? Pretty good. Uh, you know, I'm off this week, which is, is good. You know, as I told you earlier, you, you know the drill. Sometimes even when you're on, you're off. I mean, even when you're off, you're on. And so, you know, I had to go take care of a couple cases today and got a couple tomorrow when I'm off. That's the job. Exactly. That's the job. That's right. Sam, one of the things I wanted to do before we get into our topic, which I should say we're going to be talking about controversies in PAE, prostatic artery embolization, I wanted to ask you a bit. So, you know, I noticed, you know, you're the director of translational interventional radiology research at Northwestern. I want you to tell me a little bit about that position, what that entails, and some of the things that you and your group are working on that you're excited about. Yeah. So, you know, we've uh, kind of developed this program over the last 10 years, and our goal is to do research in the interventional space that is not just basic science, not just animal work, but things that we can directly translate to clinical trials and treating patients. And so that's really the goal of what we do in the lab. And so one of the big things that is an open secret, I think, in IR is we're looking for new applications for Y90 radioembolization. So, yeah. you know, we're doing studies in the brain, we're doing studies in the prostate. And so that's a lot of the work that we are working on currently and starting some clinic first in man clinical trials in the next couple of years in that space. Oh, no kidding. That's exciting. You know, you and I have talked about some of this before, you know, about doing this for prostate cancer. And I think the applications are there. I'm excited to see what you guys have coming through. Yes. So are we, you know, eagerly awaiting to get started. Yeah, I bet. 
Sam, we're going to be talking about PAE. We already knew at the beginning we were going to talk about PAE. And usually what I do is I send out an email. It's like, hey, this is what we're going to talk about. And you know, for our listeners, I emailed Sam. You know, Sam is one of the, the main guys for PAE right now in terms of research. And, and so I figured better off just kind of asking him, you know, what do you want to talk about? One of the ideas he had suggested was some controversies in PAE. Certainly they're there. We've done probably four or five podcasts on PAE. Looking back on the first one, which is probably four or five years ago, the landscape has completely changed. I mean, I would say we're approaching this being, I don't want to say a mainstream procedure, but it, it's a lot more common. You know, when, when I first interviewed Ari Isaacson and, and Sonny Bagla on this, then that there were really only a handful of people doing it in a handful of places. And now you can find somebody that does it in just about every major city. Yeah, we've come a long way since the beginning. And I would say that Ari and Sonny did the lion's share of work along with several other investigators from around the US and around the world to really democratize PAE for a variety of patients and allow us to really refine the techniques. And their lead has allowed industry to kind of follow and develop new tools to make it easier to do. What we had 10 years ago compared to what we have today is a huge, huge change. And so a lot of people are getting more and more comfortable in the space and more and more comfortable treating patients. And I think it's very clear from all of the data that we have from multiple trials that this is really something that should be offered to all patients with BPH who are considering surgical resection of their prostate. And so it's right up there with the other minimally invasive therapies. Now, Sam, I feel like we've had some very convincing data for years now. And, you know, we all know the issues with the AUA guidelines and, and I don't think we need to get into that. But do you think, you know, has there been anything major in terms of data in the last six to 12 months that goes beyond what we already have? Yeah. So I think the two biggest papers that came out in the last year or so, and I'm probably getting the dates incorrect, but we have the long-term studies from both the Portuguese group from Tiago Bilheim's group, and then Francisco Carnavale's group that basically come out around the same time showing what the 10-year data for PAE is. And I think the two biggest take-home points from those large data series is the durability of symptoms, um, how long these procedures typically last, and then also the safety profile. I think the biggest positive for PAE and what I share with patients is amongst all of the minimally invasive surgical therapies, it's very, very safe. With experience, you can do this with a very great safety profile, especially in comparison to some of the other surgical therapies. We can do this in patients and they don't require a Foley catheter, et cetera. They don't really suffer from you know, sexual dysfunction afterwards, urinary leakage, hematuria, all these other things that you might see with surgical resection. And that's really the case to make for why PAE should be pursued maybe first, first line instead of surgery because it's just very, very safe in patients. And additionally, we can see even from those long-term data series that it doesn't preclude a patient from getting any other medical or surgical therapy down the line. Let's say their symptoms progress and they decide to go on to TERP or what have you. All of those options are still available. You haven't lost anything by trying, so to speak. Sam, from you know, just our email discussion preparing for this, you, know, you had mentioned you, know, you feel pretty strongly about the fact that we need to have some sort of standardization in how PE is performed. And First, you know, I completely agree with you, and I think that is probably one of the the barriers to making this you know grow faster is that people out there are doing this in different ways, and we're still tweaking it. I just kind of wanted to hear your take on it about where we stand in that process, and and basically how long do we have until we feel confident about the best way to do this so that we can all be doing this in a similar manner. 
Yeah. So I think everybody has a different flavor of doing it right now. You know, I won't really speak to the radial versus femoral approach because I don't, I don't think that makes a huge difference in terms of the actual outcomes. Uh, it's just patient preference at that point. But what catheters and wires to use, what your endpoints should be perfected or not perfected, what size particles, when should you coil, should you use liquids, et cetera. And so everybody's doing it a little bit differently. It's not reproducible and the data is not consistent. And that's been the big knock from the urology standpoint. When you look at a TERP or an aqua ablation or any of these minimally invasive surgical therapies, they're all done pretty much exactly the same way. There isn't a lot of room for artistic interpretation, if you will, for these cases when the urologists do them. And so when they have these large series, like everybody's trained up and they're all doing it the same way, we need to approach PAE with the same rigor. And I think the best way to do that is to follow the data. We have a lot of long-term data from, as I mentioned, from the Brazilian and Portuguese groups as to what the best techniques are and how we should be doing them and what size particles to use and the techniques. And we should be implementing all of that because that's our best long-term data. And if everybody's doing it that way, I really feel strongly that we can get the numbers that we should be getting in all these cases and getting the outcomes that make it very comparable to urologic therapies and very consistent. So what do you think is the best means of educating, I don't want to say the public, but the IR community on really what this way is, the best way to do this moving forward? I mean, are we talking about, I don't really know the, the right way to to inform everybody what they should be doing. Yeah, let's let's use this podcast and do it right here, you know? So I think the, uh, just, you know, being a little bit facetious, but the big <laughs> studies that we have, all of them pretty much start off with data from 300 to 500 micron particles. Right. And so my standpoint is everybody who's doing it, if you're going to do a, a de novo PAE, not a repeat treatment, not somebody who's already undergone surgical therapy and has uh, recurrence of symptoms, just a de novo new PAE patient, all of the data points to 300 to 500. So that's what you should be using in those patients. Just, just stick to that. There's a lot of safety there. It shows really good efficacy with a really, really favorable side effect profile. So why change any of that up? I think there's been isolated reports. And, and what I've seen from my own experience is when you get a little bit smaller in the particles and when you're going down to the smaller size of like one to 300 or so, right. you certainly get a better infarction. That is without question. But you start to get a few more off-target effects and right. more risk of sexual dysfunction. I think one of the big positives for PAE that a lot of patients respond to is the minimize risk of sexual dysfunction, basically no risk of sexual dysfunction if, if done. Absolutely. One of our biggest selling points. Exactly. 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 And so what I've seen is when you use a really small particles, you basically infarct the center of the gland. Maybe it peels off okay. and you're basically done an endovascular resection of the prostate. Yeah, it's a great response. They're going to pee great, but they're also going to have retrograde ejaculation. So do okay. we really, really want that? And I would argue no. No. And, and is it even necessary, you know, that, that extra level of infarction? You know, we've seen the same kind of thing with fibroids. Try to go smaller. Is it necessary? You still get good results with 300 to 500. Exactly. If we're really pushing safety and much more favorable side effect profile compared to the other options, I think you, you really, it really is contingent upon using that kind of technique. So that, I think that's, that's one of the big ones because everybody always feels a little bit differently about it what size particles to use and, and that potpourri of flavors and stuff. Let's go through some of the, the other controversies that you had mentioned uh, in your email. And, and the first one was, we're going to call it controversy number one, like you did in your email. PAE should be considered alongside medical management. If you look at the 
AUA guidelines if and 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 what practices and what our understanding is. And so they branch off the treatment pathway in that patients can go after they declare that they have BPH with lower urinary tract symptoms and they are indeed symptomatic, they can start on medications like Flomax and Finasteride, so 5-alpha reductase inhibitors and alpha blockers. However, everybody knows that patients don't really tolerate these medications. They get really bad side effects and the failure rates are higher with larger glands. So a lot of urologists are opting for what's called early surgical intervention, where they basically push for getting a patient to surgery when they have the right indication. They, they have a large gland. They know they're going to fail medical management, et cetera. And so why wait to treat them and know that their symptoms are going to progress and just get early you know, treatment for their BPH and lower urinary tract symptoms? So if we know that's already happening in the surgical space, it would make sense that you could do the same thing with embolization. You know, obviously totally. you make sure that the patient does indeed have BPH and LUTs and why, why not go straight to, to treatment instead of prolonging things when you know they're not going to work. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think you can very easily make the argument, especially for a really large gland, you know, those symptoms are coming, you know, it's not really going to, it's not going to fully improve with meds. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, and especially there, there's a time factor too. I mean, that these people are in the meds for usually a good while before we get to the treatment part. Yeah, exactly. And so why prolong that? Why have the side effects and the potentially the progression and adverse events that can occur with just keeping patients on medication from a urinary retention standpoint or UTIs or other things when you know it's not going to work in a big gland and just get them to early treatment? I completely agree. All right. So the next one I have for you is should PA be performed only alongside a urologist? Not in the same room, but basically patient who's already seeing urology. And I'll tell you to start off when I started doing this, I felt very strongly that I needed to have urology on board. I, I went out and spent some time with Ari when he was still at UNC maybe five years ago and saw how they were doing it. And I, I came out of there convinced, it's like, this is the way they follow up with urology. And then I got into practice and I just waited and waited and continued to wait for you know any referral from urology. I did a lot of work trying to get these referrals, do a lot of good work outside of the prostate space with these guys and, and nothing came. And, and what I started to see was a lot of self-referred patients. And some of them were already seeing a urologist, some were not interested. And, and Sam, for me, I, I've gotten to where I haven't really had much of a choice. Like some of these, I just kind of have to deal with on my own. I've got a urologist that I can refer to for anything like that, but I'm kind of interested in getting your take on it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have a very robust relationship with urology there. It's, it's a little bit easier for you, but I'm sure you find self-referred patients too. You know, speaking openly, probably 75 to 95% of my practice is self-referrals, honestly. Wow. Okay. It's uh, most patients, what I've found is unlike fibroids and gynecology, most men have a transactional relationship with their urologist. This is something I, I learned from Bob Vogelzang, actually. You know, you only really go and see your urologist when you have a problem. You're not, you're not seeing them after, you know, childbirth for like, you know, your whole life. And so they're not, a lot of men are not wedded to continuing to see their urologist. So once they have the diagnosis of BPH, they're looking for the, all their options. Totally reasonable to see them after that. So when you get a patient who self-refers, do you see, I mean, do you have them see urology as well? Typically, you know, what I've found is, and I think it's probably different everywhere, is a man will not show up in my clinic 
unless they've been told they have BPH and they've been diagnosed with it. Because otherwise, they they have no reason to see me. Okay. And so they've are they're a very well educated population in general. They know what the treatment options that are out there. They've been told about TERP or other minimally invasive surgical therapies. And they're like, you know, it doesn't really sound like that's what I want to have a scope, et cetera. Yeah. I won't get too vulgar on the podcast. Um, they they already know what they're in for. And so they've already educated themselves. And that's why they've come and seen me. So I typically have patients who have already had the diagnosis of BPH. That being said, occasionally you see ones that somehow find you anyways. And I, I do like them to see somebody to confirm in the EMR. I'm with you. Yeah, BPH. Not neurogenic bladder, not something else. Totally. You know, it's been a challenge debating for some of them that haven't or that travel from out of state, how much of the workup I need them to do. And like, I, I haven't decided, I haven't really come to a conclusion on this. Like, do I insist that they get Euroflow or not? I don't know. How important do you think Euroflow is in the workup? You know, when we started doing all this in the beginning, and this is, you know, stuff that Ari and Sonny had pioneered early on in like the stream courses and such. That was like a big component of it. But I think now that we've gotten more comfortable and there's a lot more data about PAE, is it really necessary? A lot of urologists will manage these patients based on clinical symptoms alone, AUA symptom score and all these validated questionnaires. Maybe they have a Euroflow in the office, maybe they don't, but they're not completely dependent on that for their treatment. And so I don't think we should be either as long as they have the true diagnosis of BPH. That should be sufficient. I'm with you, Sam. All right, well, so here's the next controversy then. What about pre-procedure imaging? Do you ever do this without any pre-procedure imaging? I usually get something if I haven't looked at the prostate. I, I guess you should make the distinction between pre-procedure vascular imaging or any imaging of the prostate. Kind of interested how you feel about both. The big thing here is, and I know things are different elsewhere in the country, it really depends location to location, but imaging is not typically part of BPH workup. It's not considered standard of care. Okay. And so if a patient goes and sees a urologist, he's not getting an MR, he's not getting a CT scan to tell his prostate is big unless he has some other indication, cancer, hematuria, something like that. So it's not part of the typical workup. So if they come to see you and you want to get a CT scan or an MRI or whatever, it can be difficult to get that covered by insurance. And then your patient is left with an out-of-pocket cost. Yeah. Truthfully, all these minimally invasive surgical therapies are all being done for the most part in the community without necessarily getting all this high-level cross-sectional yeah. imaging that we would require for IR. That being said, lots of groups have shown, regardless of prostate size, you can treat these patients as long as they have the right inclusion criteria in terms of symptoms. And so I would argue that with enough experience and the right equipment, you shouldn't need cross-sectional imaging to be able to okay. take a patient to angio and treat them, especially since it's not part of the regular workup and you could be leaving the patient with a cost that they'd have to cover themselves. I'm with you. I agree. Most of the time it doesn't add much. And I, I hate to be too anecdotal on here, but like my two of my last patients that had been referred, I got imaging on them. And the first one had the tiniest prostate that I think I've ever had referred. It was so small. It's like, I just don't think I'm going to be able to, to really add much for you. And the other guy had a bladder full of stones. But again, that's very rare. But to take this a, a step further, let's talk about cone beam CT. I mean, that's technically pre-procedure imaging. And if you had brought this up, it, it's something we should talk about. And I agree. I mean, a lot of people just going straight to angio, doing the embolization, and that's it. You and I both agree on cone beam CT. So I think in the beginning, cone beam was deemed as something to make sure that we are indeed in the prostate. You're not embolizing the bladder. You're not embolizing some other structures. And that, that it was like a confirmatory tool. What we found from the initial experience and a lot of the reported literature is 
Comb beam is really valuable, not just for that, but also identification of other supply and collaterals. And so Absolutely. early papers have reported like collaterals in the realm of like 20 to 40% of patients. I think in my own practice, I see them in 60 to 70% of patients. Wow. And so why is that important? When I take somebody to Angio, what I tell them is, I want to get you to a five-year success rate that matches Tiago's work and matches Carnivale's work, which is basically in the recurrence rate is under 20%. And in order to do that, you want to treat everything that's going to the prostate at the same time. Identify the, the major blood supply, but any collaterals that might crop up and then feed the gland after you've done the embolization. And to do that, I really rely heavily on cone beam to make sure that there aren't extra prostatic sources that I need to coil off and such. And so, yeah, I see those in 60 to 70% of cases and I'm doing a lot of coil embolization before we do the particle embolization to facilitate that. And you're able to see them a lot of time on your cone beam CT. I don't think that gets talked about enough is using cone beam as a tool to identify collaterals that either need to be embolized or something you got to look out for during the treatment. The way I've been using cone beam, and I think a lot of people started doing it this way, is rather than using it once you get into the prostate, I do like a, basically a pelvic cone beam CT to get a lay of the land, the anatomy, and then look at everything that is going towards the gland. And my quote unquote search pattern for this is I look at what's perfusing the penis on both sides first, uh -huh. and then making sure that there isn't you know a distal pudendal branch that's coming back up towards the prostate or feeding the prostate. Once I've cleared that, and if there is, then I try to get into that and coil it off to begin with. Once I've cleared that, then I look at what's going to the gland on both sides. Is there stuff from the rectum, stuff from the bladder, you know, et cetera, where's the origin? And then trying to treat all of those vessels at the same time. And what we found is once you get over 80 to 100 grams, you're usually going to have two arteries on the right, two on the left, some kind of asymmetry that you just got to get into all of these different vessels. Are they usually big enough to identify the ones that you're going to have to treat or, you know, are they hard to distinguish from some of these collaterals, you know, as you said, like from a pudendal that you know, you would coil rather than infuse particles through. Yeah. So basically what my goal is to get into all the little ones, if they are several, coil all those off, basically skeletonize the gland, so to speak. Yeah. And then get into the main supply, embolize that with particles to stasis. So going after those at the beginning rather than during your treatment, does the, do these prostates, pelvic and prostatic arteries, do they respond the same way they do in the liver where you could do an embolization and then 30 minutes later, you know, you get redistribution of flow into the rest of the gland? Yeah. So that's basically what we've seen in our own experience. And then in others have reported this, that like, where do early recurrences come from? And it's, it's usually these collaterals that you either didn't treat the first time or didn't see, or you missed or whatever. And so now I'm just really vigilant about getting into them coiling them off up front such that once you treat the main one, you're getting filling, that inflow is cut off, so to speak. You're getting filling of the whole gland. You're not having any missing pieces, et cetera. So it's like, as I'm doing the case, it's like a jigsaw puzzle and I'm trying to like piece it together side to side and make sure everything is covered and not missing anything. Do you ever, you know, see these collaterals that are, that are big enough that you decide you need to, you know, particle embolize as well? Yes. And so I think the key is you see how much tissue it's perfusing. Yeah. What's its size relative to your microcatheter? And then when you inject, are you getting anagrade flow or is it mostly refluxing into okay. territory that you don't want to treat from? And so one way, you know, you can just do that with the catheter. The, the other things that I've found is using like vasodilators, nitroglycerin, verapamil, uh -huh. things like that can help you and redirect the flow such that you can embolize with particles from these collaterals if it's appropriate and then coil them off when you're, when you're done.
Now, one more question about cone beam. Not using it so much anymore to confirm. Do you ever do them, you know, after you get the microcatheter in and do another one to show how much gland you're perfusing? Typically not. I think the pelvic cone beam gives you a really good lay of the land. And just from a time standpoint, if you want to just move and be efficient, you can estimate from angio how much gland you're covering once you've kind of picked everything off that you need to. I think early in your experience, in your first 20 cases or so, you really need it. After that, it gets it gets really, you know, second nature. Yeah, I'm, I'm not at a point where I am interested in getting rid of cone beam in, in really any sense. Certainly not at the beginning. I'm doing them kind of the way you are. I asked our friend Dave Johnson, his protocol, and kind of stolen that. For me, it, it's, it's invaluable. Okay, let's move on again. Let's talk about embolic agents to use for PAE. You had mentioned that you know you prefer 300 to 500 micron particles. That's what I'm using as well. I, I just for me, it's just that in coils. You know, you, you hear about people using liquid embolics. You had mentioned that and smaller particles. Are there ever any circumstances where you're using either of those? Anything smaller or liquid? No, not really. Not after all the data that's been out there for smaller, unless you have a patient that you're retreating for whatever reason, or they've already undergone previous surgical therapy, and then those vessels can get very dicey and they're very small. You know, we've had good results in patients that we've retreated after Eurolift failures or green light failures or other things like that, but those vessels can be smaller and friable and thus require different tools. But in those cases, the other thing that we've noted, and we'll be like publishing this pretty soon, I think we shared it at Guest last year, is those patients tend to have a lot lot more collaterals. Interesting. And so you have to be really vigilant about coiling and looking out for non-target embolization in those patients because, you know, after they've been resected or partially resected, what have you, it, the blood flow and vascular anatomy changes quite a bit. That's interesting. I didn't realize that after Eurolift, et cetera, they get, they get more collaterals. I don't, I don't think I've had to retreat any of those. You mentioned that those arteries can be a lot more friable and presumably more tortuous. How are you treating them differently? All of the same tools we talked about with comb beam and, and everything like that aggressive with the vasodilators, okay. very aggressive with coil embolization because we find like collaterals to the penis, bladder, rectum, everything that you can imagine, there are going to be collaterals basically. And the vessels are usually much smaller and more um, wispy and friable. There's like a lot more instead of a big single artery, there might be a lot of tiny yeah. little branches going to the tissues. So it can be very challenging, but the patients do really well after the treatment. It's just a little bit more meticulous work is required to do it safely. And so very liberal with use of coils, very liberal with use of yeah. vasodilators and getting a lot of good angiographic images to make sure that you're not hitting anything that you don't want to hit in the wrong target bed. Let's talk a little bit more about collaterals. You know, you've already told us what you do for the ones that you identify in comb beam CT that you embolize before going after the main arteries to the gland. Let's talk about how you approach the ones that pop up during your treatment, during embolization, the ones that you see when you do your run, you know, after... How do you decide, you know, which ones need to be embolized and what do you do if it's something you can't reach? That's a great question. So when I initially started out doing these, I would give a little bit of particles, you know, 3cc medallion or something like that, then do a run, and a little bit more and then do a run. And it probably was, the doses were way too high. Mine are still there. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, you, uh, you're like, oh no, what do I do with that? Exactly. Like, do I, do I go after it? Where's it going? You know, is that going to the penis? Uh, is it going to the bladder? getting a lot of anxiety from that. And so what I've found is I do the cone beam up front. I identify what is hemodynamically significant that it's lighting up okay. as a collateral up front before you've done anything, before you've changed the flow dynamics. Take care of the ones that I need to take care of, get into the prostate, give a very liberal dose of nitro, something around 200 mics mm -hmm. per side or more, followed by verapamil. 
And the verapamil idea is kind of in line with some papers that have been written um, and also what's been reported with like balloon microcatheter experience yeah. in that if you create a low pressure vascular bed in the prostate, any of the other vessels are like protective inflow. So instead of you injecting and then the contrast going out the collaterals or the flow going out the collaterals, now it's low pressure in the prostate. So the flow is coming in from everywhere. Okay. And so as long as you embolize really slowly in that low pressure state, you shouldn't see anything go out. So I dilute my particles in like 20 cc's of straight contrast. Yeah. And then I inject with like a really big syringe. So I'm forced to go really, really slow. Okay. When I started out, it was hard to get into the prosthetic artery. And that was all the time in the case. <laughs> now it's like getting in in five minutes and then embolizing for like 25 yeah. you know, per side and just going really, really slow. And then as long as you don't see reflux distally from the catheter tip beyond the prostate, I don't do another run until it's st static. Yeah. And so it's it's worked out really well from that standpoint. I sleep at night better. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a lot it's a lot simpler. Dude, just using 300 to 500 micron particles also helps me sleep a whole lot better knowing that a couple of those little guys are probably going to leak out there, but I've just it, it seems to be pretty well tolerated with 300 to 500 micron particles. Exactly. And you know, all the cadaver studies and basic science studies in the space have shown like what is the vessel size of these different organs that you want to avoid basically. And as long as you're in that range, the likelihood of you damaging those other other structures, as long as you don't directly inject the penis right. or the bladder or something like that, very, very low. Just go real slow. And the slow, steady embolization I found works really, really well. And then I don't have to do multiple runs in these patients and, and the outcomes are just as good as how we were doing it previously. Man, that's super helpful. That That's going to change how I approach these. Take good good pictures up front and then and just stop after that. Take your time with the embolization. It's much, much simpler. Oh, it sounds like it. Certainly, that's one thing about my own performance that needs to change or my dose rates are pretty high. And I think a lot of that comes from those runs in the middle. And so, yeah, I look forward to to making some adjustments. So no need for perfected technique in your practice. I'm, I'm personally not advancing it any farther after I get there, but... Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. So what were the endpoints in perfected you start proximal, you, then you go distal, and then you're looking for, if you've already taken it to stasis, how do you know when to stop? You know, and some of the endpoints with perfected are like it's weird blush, vessel rupture, things like things I just, I just don't really feel comfortable seeing on an angiogram, you know? Yeah. And so what I've done more recently with these newer generation of microcatheters from like Boston and Tarumo and everybody is you can get really deep up front. And then I just get as far as it wants to go and then basically start embolizing and then embolize all the way back until it's static up to where I think it's safe that there's not going to be any reflux anywhere. Get really deep as far as you can go up front and then just embolize. You can take a true select almost in the gland. and <laughs> Yeah. I've taken it to the other side, you know. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. And after you do your embolization with the 300 to 500 micron particles, do you use gel foam or anything else or just particles and go? Just particles and go typically. The only time I'm adding anything else is in the patients with hematuria or something like that that are coming in because they're bleeding and they're having clot retention and things like that. I get more aggressive with either gel foam or more, more typically okay. with coils. Because in those guys, a lot of times they're on blood thinners. They got to get back on them for their heart yeah. or what have you. And so I don't want them to ever, ever bleed again. And so that's when I'm quote unquote coiling out. Otherwise, I'm pretty anti-coiling out, which we can get into. Let's get into that because I, 
Sam, I, I guess what I don't understand, and I, it's not something that I do in my practice. Tell me the rationale for coiling out. I guess for our listeners, what is coiling? I mean, so I don't, I don't want to speak to it too much because I don't do it, but it, it's a technique in that, you know, you embolize the prostate to stasis and then you coil the parent vessel when you're done such that there's a better infarction and less perfusion to the gland and a more permanent embolization, if you will. Now, is there long-term data showing that that's the better way to do this? No, it hasn't happened yet. And maybe there will be, and maybe I'll be proven wrong. That's a possibility. But I think if you take a more global view of BPH, BPH is a hormonal process. Its growth is because of testosterone and stuff like that in bloodstream. And we're not taking that away from patients, not with TERP, not with embolization, not with anything. And really the only way to prevent regrowth of the gland is complete surgical removal with like a radical prostatectomy. Yeah. So even with TERP, the natural history of the disease is such there's probably up to a 20% chance of recurrence at five years requiring either medical or surgical therapy. So you know the gland's going to regrow. Yeah. So why not leave yourself an option to get back in and retreat? Because you know, on a long enough time scale, the patient will need retreatment. So I don't think you can ever get complete perfect embolization that's never going to require treatment again. I, I think that's very unlikely. And so why not facilitate a retreatment in patients? Because I think if you ask a patient their options, if they did really well with their first PAE and five, 10 years later, they need a second one, I think they would opt for that rather than going through a TERP or any other more invasive surgical therapy. Personally, I, I guess I don't know that, I don't believe that the coil adds much to the embolization, at least not in the sense that it's going to cause much further gland infarction. When you think about it, I mean, half the time you're doing these patients have atherosclerotic stenosis and the vessel you're trying to treat and inflow, I don't really think so much is the issue. You're getting flow from all these other branches as well. Exactly. So I don't think it adds much. And I think it only creates a difficulty if you have to go back in and, and retreat the patient. That being said, if they're coming for hematuria and they're bleeding and you really want to make sure that they don't bleed again, especially if they have to go back on anticoagulation, in those patients, I will coil the parent vessel. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. To the same end, that's why I don't really think there's a really good role or justification for liquids yeah. in this space. Because if you think about it, a liquid is very similar in the way it works to a coil and you're just really occluding the, the main branches you're pretty much guaranteeing that you're never going to be able to retreat this patient. And when we know that the natural history of the disease is such that they will likely require retreatment at some point. And so why do that and not be able to offer this therapy again to the patient if it's so advantageous from a safety and side effect profile? Totally. I mean, it's more proximal embolization than particles. For me, I, I, just, I don't have a, a role for it. Uh, Sam, the next thing I have for you, and, and this is the last question that I have, unless you've got something else that you want to talk about is the next controversy that you brought up. Retreatment rates depict a false narrative of PAE utility. We touched on this a little bit, but I want to take it a little bit further um, and just have you kind of run through this one. You know, the, the big knock against prostate embolization is that when urologists look at the, the data from, especially from some of the RCTs that were published out of the Swedish trial and others, there was a 20% retreatment rate at one year and then they're like, well, it, do it doesn't work in, in a large a number of patients. And then, you know, looking more globally at the long-term data that we talked about earlier in the podcast, at five to 10 years, there's probably also a 20% retreatment rate. And so what are these retreatment rates? I think the early failures are really contingent upon technique. How are you doing it? Are you identifying all the vessels? Are you treating both sides of the gland? Those early 
papers, those big RCTs, the, the app trial and such, a large number of patients were only treated with unilateral embolization, hence why they had recurrence of symptoms very, very early. It makes sense. Right. You treat it on one side, we know that that's not going to work. Same thing with the UK rope trial. And so when urologists bring up those issues, that's basically the argument can be made that's like doing half a TER yeah. or half a resume or aqua ablation. Of course, it's not going to work. The long-term retreatment rates really speak to the natural history of the disease. I don't think it's possible to get a retreatment rate that's zero. And when you compare PAE to other minimally invasive surgical therapies, and there are a lot of nice systemic meta-analyses that are both from the PAE literature and also the MIST literature, they all really show that the long-term retreatment rates for both groups of therapies are in the 10 to 30% range at five to 10 years. Interesting. Lines up pretty nicely. PAE has a retreatment rate of that. So do all the other mists. It's it's really consistent. And so if we have this similar retreatment rate and we know what the natural history of the disease is, why wouldn't you want to choose something that is less invasive, has a better safety and side effect profile, and won't affect sexual function rather than something that's more invasive? And so I think that's a, a better option for patients. And if you were to counsel them appropriately and kind of present everything like this, I would argue that a patient would rather undergo something like a PAE and preserve his sexual function early on and then progress if he needs to, to something more invasive later on in life or have a repeat PAE if he needs to, rather than move forward to something more invasive surgically. Man, I, I think you just nailed that one. You know, one of the benefits of this is just not take anything off the table for any further treatments. We do this, you, you're still available to have any of the other treatments that are out there after. This, this does not stop anything. Sam, that, that's about all I got. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? I think we covered a lot. I think I'm very passionate about this space and this technique. And I really think we're doing a good job as a specialty of really trying to bring it to as many patients as possible. I think the next goal, as we kind of touched on as a group, is we just have to really agree and draw a line in the sand of this is how we should all be doing it. Let's all agree to do it the same way. Maybe that comes in the form of guideline documents, et cetera. Yep. That way, everybody's doing it the same way. The results are very reproducible and patients can have really good outcomes. Why do I think that's achievable? If you compare the long-term data from the Portuguese group and the Brazilian group, they're very similar. And those are guys who are high-level operators who are doing it exactly the same way for case and case and case out. We should be doing it the same way. And you know, in our own experience, we've tried to adapt those techniques and we see similar outcomes. And so I think it's conceivable that everybody can do it this way. Everybody can have very similar outcomes. And then a patient can look at the data and, and make an informed decision knowing that it's not really contingent upon what particle the operator uses or microcatheter, et cetera, it's going to be a reproducible result and they can, yeah. they can rest assured that they know what they're getting into. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that's a great way of putting it. Sam, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us. And I look forward to begging you to come back on once you publish some of this new data you guys have coming down the pipe. But thank you. And thanks again to our listeners. And we'll catch you guys on the next one. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson. 
Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.